another episode of In Our 1990s, the podcast where your two hosts are ranking all of the alternative albums of the 1990s in the absolutely perfect order, even when it's ridiculously hot outside and we leave our air conditioner on despite what that might do to the sound. I'm your host, Natalie, and with me as always is Hadrian. How hot are you, Hadrian? Oh, so hot right now. It sucks. It's... It's it, gross. It's a fucking like, dust storm yesterday. Oh yeah, apparently that's a whole thing that's happening like intercontinentally, intercontinentally. Like the Sahara Desert just like, mm, I'm big mad. And that's where we're at now. Yeah, it just is 2020 just keeps the hits coming. Yeah, I didn't sign up for, you know, actual biblical plagues. No, I mean, I'm looking forward to the frogs. I think that one will be kind of cool. Well, we were having that problem at my at my job. They uh, reformat, they redid the parking area, so it, it filled in a, a natural pond and created another one. So all the frogs are spawning closer to the door. So every day we just find fucking frogs in the store. I mean, it's almost, this is the last week of June. It, we're so close to getting the plague of gay frogs. The pride frogs. Like the freaking frogs gay! It's... it's uh, we could have had it. We were so close. But it's 2020, so we won't get the gay frogs, because that would be cooler. No, we'll all get the Alex Jones frogs. Oh, God. Frogs that just yell at us about conspiracy theories. <laughs> Demons. Demons from the pit of hell. Mm-hmm. Eating I said that like Carl from Aquatines. <laughs> Demons. Demons from the pit of hell. Someone <laughs> will stab you. Go away, you freak. <laughs> so freaking tired of this. <laughs> Okay, well, we're not reviewing anything to Actually, you know what? We are, because Schooly D did the so did theme song for the Odd Frog Between Hunter Force. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> so one of our albums this week has a Schooly D connection. So fucking, this is, let's talk like Carl for the whole episode. Oh, let's not. Well, we're not going to start with that one. This week we're starting with my selection, which is, so I called it in, uh, Impatience last week. Reading up on it, I think anxiety is probably a better translation. Um, I, so, so just to put all my cards on the table, I took a semester of Chinese in college. I took Chinese and Japanese uh, because I'm a nerd. Um, but I only took a semester of Chinese and then went whole hog into Japanese. That's fair. Um, so I, I can I sort of know how to pronounce Chinese words. I can't read a lot of them. I should have gone with Chinese. China rules the world now. The grammar's way easier. This is also this is also true. Usually, I've been at- usually the music's not as good though. And that's ultimately why I went with Japan. Their music's better. Also anime. Um but so the first record we're doing this week is so once again, forgive me, I'm sure my Chinese pronunciation is terrible, but I'm gonna try it where applicable. Uh Fuzao which is, I'm guessing this is the, the amount of different translations of that title is a literal versus intent translation thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so Impatience is the one that I have seen the most regularly, but reading up on it a little bit, I think probably anxiety captures the meaning more or the, the spirit of, of what it's about because it was 96, a year before Hong Kong went back under Chinese rule, and it, it, it sort of deals with those feelings of anxiety for people in Hong Kong. Yeah, so, and I um, can see how it could also be inter- interpreted as impatience, not impatient, impatience for it happening, but impatience at the, like, waiting for the bad thing that the yeah, shooter drops. So. Especially if you're Fei Wong and liked to uh, poke the bear of the mainland government <laughs> by idolizing the Taiwanese singer and releasing a full album of covers of her songs. A Taiwanese singer who had been declared decadent by the Chinese government. Uh, that was her previous album right before this one, was a, a, a album of covers of Teresa Tang, Tang songs. Nice. Um, so, anyway, this was uh, 1996, and so if you don't know Fei Wong quick history of her that I'm going to try to provide from memory, so bear with me. 
Um, she is a singer and actress. Uh, she was born in on the mainland, but then moved to Hong Kong, and then Hong Kong is where you know had such a this massive entertainment industry through up through the nineties. And so, even though she recorded in, in both Cantonese, which is the Hong Kong dialect, and Mandarin, which is the major dialect on the mainland, uh, she lived in Hong Kong. And um, she was a, a pretty huge pop star and also an actress. And that's how I originally discovered her because she co-stars in one of my all-time favorite movies, Chongqing Express. And that was where I first encountered her. And if you lived in the United States, the version of Chongqing Express that we got here was promoted as... They try almost tried to package it as if Quentin Tarantino like produced it. Hmm. it. It was like presented by Quentin Tarantino, Chunking Express. And the cool thing about that is, I mean, A, it got people to watch this Wong Tar Wai movie who probably wouldn't have otherwise, myself included. Um, and B, on the VHS version that, that we got here, he, um, there was like a short feature at the end of him like explaining who all these people were and why they were all important and he talked about Fei Wong being a singer and covering he only the only one he talked about well she she does a cover of uh California Dreamin in that movie but also she covered uh Dreams by the Cranberries and there's like footage of her on the in that little featurette on the VHS tape and so I was like oh wow that seems insane there's this woman in china who's covering cranberry songs and um so what i didn't know yet and this is where my memory gets fuzzy is that she also had done a whole bunch more covers of western artists and especially western dream pop and like british indie bands so she had covered um here's where the story ends by the sundays she'd covered several talk to twin songs uh, she covered everything but the girl. So, and I'm sure there are others that I'm forgetting, but that's what is, you know, just again off the top of my head. So, 1996 was also a, a big year for the Tarto Twins because they put out their final album and broke up that year. <laughs> and so I was on a Tarto Twins email list because it was 1996 and that's how you got information about <laughs> about stuff back then and someone I want to say this is how I got this album is that somebody on that email list was like I know a guy and there's this Chinese woman who covers Tarto Twins songs and she's putting out a new album and there's two Tarto Twins two songs written by Tarto Twins on the album that you might not have heard before and I know a guy who can get copies, basically as many copies of it as, as I want. So pay me and I will give the money to him and you'll all get copies of this weird album. And it was 1996 and you trusted some random stranger on an email list to do that. And I got a copy of this. Hey. Yeah. And this album is, spoilers, it's really good. Um, it's not, you know, Tocto Twins level good, <laughs> but it is... I feel like very much her just getting it out of her system, full-on tribute to the Tocto Twins, um, because it does have two songs that they wrote on it. It also has 10 tracks on it, which if you're a hardcore Tocto Twins fan like me, you know that every Tocto Twins album, except for Garland's, the first one has 10 tracks on it. It was like kind of their weird thing that they, that they always did, always 10 <laughs> tracks. And so this... Aside from, because on her older albums, it was sort of like she would cover the Tocto Twins or the Sundays or whatever, but it would be in the midst of all this really mainstream canto pop stuff, which if you haven't heard any of that before, imagine like what Celine Dion was doing in the 90s and that's what almost all of it sounds like. Yeah, um, I had never actually listened to Fei Wong before we did this the, did this show, not from like disinterest, more just like it, the opportunity. It's... It's kind of difficult to get into her music when you can't read what the songs are. Yeah. And that, and that's my that's my problem and I could have done more work to get into it, but sometimes you're just lazy when it comes to music consumption and that's what I did. But um 
I had heard some some canto pop before, so when I was listening to this album, I was like, okay, this is very clearly a Natalie ass album because of how much Cocteau Twins is on this. Then I, I came into the room, I was like kicked down the door, being like, "This is a fucking Cocteau Twins album," and you're like, "Oh yeah, yeah they- you fooled me." <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then you were like, "Oh no, they wrote two of the songs." I was like, "Oh, that makes fucking makes sense." Yeah. What, but what I was gonna say is that there's still this very traditional uh, Cantonese. Uh, traditional music that kind of filtered into canto pop that's like there's traditional singing styles that are used in pop music and she has a beautiful voice and that's why she's she can cover the cocktail twins so effectively is that she that traditional style of singing lends itself to ethereal to etherealness yeah it's just interesting and kind of funny to listen to her older albums or, or the stuff before this um, because it would be like imagine listening to like a Celine Dion album from 1994, and then all of a sudden, like, uh, know who you are at every age by the Tarto Twins comes on. Yeah, like that's what Faye Warren's old albums are like. You, it's all this incredibly mainstream adult contemporary stuff, and then boom, all of a sudden, like these huge shimmery guitars kick in and it's just like wait what is this what happened here um or you know she goes into a cranberries cover or something you know yeah something so it's her older stuff is harder to recommend um because it it really is like if you are more in the like if you're coming to it from well i like dream pop and i want to hear this curiosity you're not gonna like like 99 percent of the songs on each album and then she'll do one crazy cover and it's like well that's awesome but everything else is like puts you to sleep yeah um also one one last thing around this time of her talk to twins connection she recorded um a a duet or I, I mean, I don't think it was really a duet. I think she just went into the studio and recorded vocals. But like the Asian market release of the Cocteau Twins' last album, Milk and Kisses, um, the song Serpent Skirt, it has her and Liz Fraser both singing on it. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So she actually did finally get to record with them at the end. There was also a rumor, which Robin Guthrie did finally, like, actually, no, I think Simon Ramone was the one who squashed it, but when the Tarto Twins broke up, there was a rumor that they had, like, most of another album ready to go and were just going to let Fei Wan record vocals for it and release it as a Fei Wan album. Mm-hmm. And that was, like, I don't know if somebody just made that up or if there was some kernel of, like, it had been considered, but, like, I was super excited about that. And then Simon Ramone came out and was like, no, we that was never a thing it's, we it was like we did we had some more material that we had worked on but it's like nowhere near being able to be released so that so did, we never got that yeah that just sounds like uh wishful thinking wish, wishful thinking <laughs> and the the reality that fei wong has a, a heckin great impression <laughs> of, of lips Spider. So. yeah yeah so this album was kind of a bridge though ultimately between her older like pure canto pop stuff and what she did after this um she she went way more into like i mean it was the late 90s and so like 97 on she she went into a way more like way more let's say more palatable to western audiences Mm. and, and more like her albums after this sounded way more like stuff you could have heard on the radio in in america or in in England also, you know, it was she had kind of a British. It, it was still a little more mainstream, but she she definitely went way more uh, Western. I guess is the only way I can think of to to say it after this album. So like, if you do want to get into her, I'd almost recommend like you start with this album and go, then go to the stuff after this, um, because she it's going to be way a way more inviting listen to somebody who's coming at it from a a western standpoint yeah um but anyway so this album it's pure 100 percent dream pop yes absolutely (laughs) there is nothing mainstream or canto pop on this album it is it she's doing a cocteau twins impression through the whole thing except i would say track two which is the title track which sounds like the sundays yeah. Or the or I actually I'd say the cranberries more than the Sundays. But. I mean beyond beyond her singing, uh, like the, beyond like the language she's singing in, there is a very uh, 
Asian flair to the way these songs are styled. Like, they're still very much, this is, you can tell there's, Fei Wong is doing things that she knows and she's familiar with, but it is all filtered through the fact that there are two Cocteau Twins songs on this album. <laughs> and it just, like, that is the sound. And that's fine, because those songs would be totally out of place if the rest of the album didn't try to conform in some way to matching that, because those two songs are great. <laughs> Yeah, and I have never... So the the two tracks that were written by the Cocteau Twins are track four, which is... Uh, let me see. I'm going to try to pronounce the Chinese title here. Xin uh, Lie. And it would probably translate to Fracture. Um, that one is was released by the Cocteau Twins as under the title Tranquil Eye. It's a B-side on the violin single. single. And track number... Eight, which is Sao Xing, which is probably Spoil Sport is the t- translation of that one. And that one was released uh, by the Cocteau Twins as Touch Up on Touch, which I think was, that's like a deep cut. And that one was originally, I, I want to say that was originally released on a sampler of this tiny record label that no one's ever heard of called Dewdrops. And they put out a sampler of their, it was like mostly their bands called Splashed With Many a Speck. And then just randomly had this Cocteau Twins song on it that I don't think was available anywhere else at that point. Since then, I think they did, I think it was on, it was on one of the like post-breakup compilations the Cocteau Twins put out. I don't remember if it was the BBC collection or if it was i think it was lullabies to violin it's on that it's on they they released it in a easier to find format since then i've never put them side by side i'm pretty sure that these are just the Cocteau twins recordings and she just read the vocals mm-hmm. because on both of them i mean she's singing the same vocal melodies on those songs as liz frazier so yeah. It, it At the time, I thought it was like they wrote those songs for her, and maybe that's what it was. I, I think, though, that Tranquil Eye was already out as a B-side for Violin by the time this came out. But I'm I'm a hardcore Cocteau Twins fan, but I'm not quite that hardcore <laughs> to know exactly when everything came out off the top of my head. Well, it was... So, fun fact about living with Natalie... Uh, whenever she plays guitar and you hear the effects coming out of the office, it's like, hmm, this sounds very Cocteau Twinsy. And then I, that's one, one of the reasons when I kicked down the door and I was like, this sounds like all the effects pedals you fucking own. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, so the, the fun thing though to do is, and this is where you can really tell, like, to me, those two songs sound way better than, I mean, just, just from a production standpoint, sound way better than anything else on the album. Oh, that's why they stand out so much. And it really drives home the difference between the Cocteau Twins, who had at this point spent, you know, 10 years perfecting the sound, and Fei Wong's like, studio band, which was, you know, a bunch of Hong Kong musicians who had probably never heard anything like it before. And she came in and gave them a copy of Four Calendar Cafe and was like, sound like this. Actually, I think she probably gave them a copy of Bluebell Knoll and said sound like this because there are a couple of tracks. Um, It is um, track three, and which is uh, Imagine is probably how that should be translated. And tracks uh six and seven those all sound there's it's just a dead ringer for like spooning good singing gum or a kissed out red float boat or the like the the sort of more chromatic percussion oriented songs from bluebell knoll yeah um it like it, it just especially track seven uh, decadence it is like so bluebell knoll it hurts so, but what I'm getting at is like the the guitars and stuff sound a little thinner, like they can't quite get that sheen that Robin Guthrie gets on on his guitar. But it's still a really valiant effort, uh, probably the best effort I've ever heard, honestly, of any band to sound like the Cocteau Twins in a way that's just purely derivative. Except for my song, which you can get on Bandcamp, called "Flower Drown," <laughs> and that song sounds the most like the Cocteau Twins. It, it, I'm I very mean, proud of that song. It's a very good song. Uh, um, <laughs> when we were dating, that was one of the songs on my iPod. 
it took me so long to record that shit. Anyway, this isn't about me. This is about Faye. Um, it's about you being a nerd, too. Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously, like, just going a thousand miles a minute motor mouthing about about this. So the uh, no, no, I'm sorry I'm not saying much, because this is another one of the situations where I just do not have the background. I mean, I tried to read up and learn things, but, like, there's... You can... He- I feel sometimes you don't want to hear me talk out my ass about stuff, and it's better <laughs> to just defer to someone who knows way more. Just imagine how bad it's going to be when we do a Talk to a Twins album, finally. On that, I can at least hold my own somewhat. Um... Yeah, so like the the strength of this album is that it sounds like the Tato Twins, and the weakness is that it's it's a band that had probably not heard the Tato Twins before they recorded this album. It's it's, it's a tin facsimile of of the Cocteau Twins. Yeah, and that's fine because that's still it's still pretty, it's still effective, but it's not as resonant as the two Cocteau Twin songs on the album are. Yeah, I mean, I think that the Spoil Sport, the one that is Touch Up on Touch, I think that's like the best song on the album. Oh, like, um, no, Yeah, just like no competition. Um, and like, that's one of those that I don't know how it didn't end up on Milk and Kisses. Um, I mean, I'm assuming it was recorded in the Milk and Kisses sessions. Like, even as a Talk to Twins song, that, uh, that song is like, why the fuck wasn't this on an album? Yeah. Like, it's so good. It's it's really... If you've heard Milk and Kisses, I mean, it's it's similar to, to Serpent Skirt, where it just has this cascading feel to it. Um, It just... It, it almost feels like the... Like, each note is just, like, tumbling down onto you as it's played. Like, it's a really slow, languid tempo. Um... I mean, it's just such a gorgeous, gorgeous song. It's one of my favorite Simon Ramone bass lines. Uh, it's uh, so fucking great. <laughs> and I don't know, I, I've never understood why it wasn't, why they didn't put that one out in a more accessible venue when it was originally recorded. Uh, I mean, this was, this album is honestly the most accessible or was the most accessible way to get it for a long time. Um, I also think the first track is really great, which doesn't sound... Which is probably of all the originals. Well, I mean, that goes without saying. But um, it it also doesn't sound a whole lot like the Cocteau Twins. Because it has like an acoustic guitar. Like acoustic rhythm guitar. And then like sort of big, like almost G-funk sounding synthesizers. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that, that track is really great. Um, it's it's really short. It's a nice, it's a nice tone setter, I feel. Like. Yeah, it's a great first track. Yeah, because it's like it eases you into what she's about to do, and it's not exactly it doesn't invoke everything the album's doing, but it puts you in a state of mind to get for the rest of the album. And having listened to, I, so sometimes when a first track is that is that like this is a nice introduction, I go and listen to other al- other songs on their albums, first songs to see if there's a pattern. And I think she has a consistency of like having a song that sort of sets a tone, and so that's it's nice yeah. it's that kind of consistency. I appreciate. <laughs> Yeah, and so, um, like we said, the second track um, sounds a lot like, uh, which is the title track, Anxiety, it sounds a lot like The Sundays or The Cranberries. Also, um, sorry, I don't know if I said this already, the chorus of that song is like made up words. Hmm. And apparently she might do that at other places in the album, I'm not sure. Um, that's that's the one that's like confirmed, definitely. The like Lacha Bor thing is, it's like, that's not... Chinese, it's just sounds she's making. Um, it, which it would again fit with the Tarto Twins, where most most Tarto Twins songs, the lyrics are unknown, and a lot of them, it's like people aren't even sure if she's singing like any actual human language or if she's making songs up. Yeah, like, one of my favorite Tarto Twins stories is oh fuck, I, I brought it. I think it's Melanella from uh, Tiny Di- the Tiny Dynamite EP was one of those songs where it was like that song just sat out there forever and people didn't know what it was about and then one day like an entomologist had posted somewhere hey the, did you know that on this song she's just singing the names of butterfly species <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so that's like the cool shit and like it, some of liz fraser's stuff i know she also like did like a twin peach thing where she phonetically would like write the lyrics backwards and the, or she would like r- listen to them backwards and then try to write those out phonetically and like so she's singing 
I, like, I don't think it would, if you played it in reverse, it would sound like she was speaking English, but yeah. like, that's some of her un- incomprehensible singing is is that, too. One of my, my favorite Cocteau Twins song is Ice Blink Luck. Yep. That and, one's great. And yeah, that, that's very much like, I think she said a word. <laughs> yeah, she's definitely saying words in Ice Blink Luck. Heaven or Las Vegas is like the first Cocteau Twins album where you kind of start to be able to like, oh, you know, she's definitely saying English words here. Yeah. But there's still moments where, like, she's giving away, like, and this is fine in music. Like, I don't, the only thing I care about is, like, the way you make your mouth do stuff. If you just want to just completely demolish the meaning of words, like, do it. Like, that, because a lot of, a lot of languages that aren't English, they have to do that because of the way the words don't fit the music. And just making that an aesthetic is fine. And also when you have a lot of stuff that's like based on intonation and like you can't really sing and have intonation. You mean you can, that's what musical theater is, but it doesn't fit for pop music. So Fei Wong making up (laughs) words to just make something that she liked sound the way she wanted to sound is completely reasonable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look at Sigurus. It's less (laughs) annoying than calling it Hopelandic. Oh, God. I've never heard that term. Yeah, that's the language that Sigur Rós sings in that they made up. Hopelandic. Oh, I can't listen to Sigur Rós anymore. <laughs> I thought I was doing a lot of that, but like, hmm. Yeah, they're like the number one band I should love that I kind of find slightly insufferable. <laughs> Florence and the Machine is kind of that for me. Yeah, I fucking I, hate I Florence that. and the Machine. Um, and not bad, it's just I think I just, not for me. Okay, so let's rank this album. Okay, I'm gonna let you uh, shoot for the moon here, and uh... no, I'm I'm not actually going to on okay. this one. Um, I want to put this because I like I love this album, but like at the end of the day, it's I mean the Cocteau Twins are my absolute favorite band, as you might have guessed from the past thirty minutes of me just <laughs> rambling off at the mouth about them. Um, but like at the end of the day, this is still like a very imperfect copy of the Cocteau Twins. So, oh yeah, like I said, it's a tin facsimile, but that doesn't mean it's any less, you know. No, it, the songwriting's really good. If Robin Guthrie had recorded and produced these songs, it would be a thousand times better. Because on the it, on all but the two tracks that aren't produced by the Cocteau Twins, it, it shows that it's a, you know, that it, it's this weird, like, game of telephone with their sound. But it has a lot of heart, and that's what Oh matters. yeah, no, I mean, Faye, Faye knows her shit on, you know, she was not, there were no other mainstream singers in Hong Kong who were like, I'm going to cover the Sundays and the Doctor Twins, <laughs> you know, she, yeah. was, she was the one. So, so she's, she knows the shit, but she's not the one producing her albums. Yeah. You know? So she, she kind of had my, my impression was always that she had to just be like, here's what this should sound like. Here's a copy of this album. Try to Im- imitate that. And as someone who spent years of my life trying to imitate Robin Guthrie's sound, it takes a lot of fine tuning before you finally get somewhere where you're like, okay, I feel like I have approached, you know, the the fucking master of the shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, so all that said, I think this uh, goes at number eight. Between what to do about them and reaching a new refutation of time and space, I would honestly put it at like seven. Put it above the Swirlies album. Um, I mean, I yeah, would... I mean, I'm like, I know you weren't a huge fan of that album. It for me, it like you know that I prize ambition. Mm-hmm. So it like this is very ambitious for a singer in Hong Kong. Yes, I. It's not anywhere near as fucking weird as what to do about them. No, but I think it's uh, overall just like better package. Even even being not as well produced as the two Cocteau Twin songs on the album, it it, it is clearly a love letter that that is received well, and it, it's it, it shows her strength and is a transitional period in her in her music. So it is it is probably important in her career. Oh, very much. To very much. like and so. It's its weakness is just her ambition too, of just changing the way that she was doing. She was she was performing more for herself rather than what was selling in the, in the market. Yeah, and I want to say I I didn't corroborate this 
in like before the, going on the air here or going on recording um i want to say this album just like fucking bombed <laughs> i sold like 10 copies or something in Hong Kong. i think like probably those copies that were sold through the the Tato twins email list were probably like half the sales for the album. um like people in china me. fucking hated it this but... isn't this isn't what she was known for no and no there's it's... a very big traditional like you always do the music you have traditionally done in some in many places yeah and especially i mean imagine like this is this is like the equivalent of like BTS putting out an album that sounds like Loveless. <laughs> <laughs> just like the the degree of like that kind of fandom with that kind of expectations and then just like we're going to fucking blow your mind and it went over like yeah, you blew my mind in a way that I'm not going to buy the shit. <laughs> and I but I think it deserves to be a little higher up the list because it is a, a an important step for her and it, it then the album is good almost because of that it might not have performed well but we're not ranking things entirely on how no. it performed and, and in a way that like that actually like i'm talking myself into putting it at number seven i'm surprised <laughs> you didn't put it higher because i was willing to have a conversation between six and seven yeah and I, I think so i mean in a way i don't i'm not as impressed by this as i am by what what to do about them even though i like it more mm-hmm. um it, it's for me this is so like Oh yeah, man, she's ripping off the Tarto twins. That's cute, but like, I think it's more career defining than than that. I think it's it was a lot of her just being like the the, the anxiety can be a very freeing thing too of just like admitting it and doing what you need to do, and I think that comes through in the way her music changed. Yeah, and I don't think she ever covered the Tarto twins again after this. I mean, outside of like, I'm sure she did in live situations. But yeah. I, I haven't listened to every, I kind of like fell off of her stuff around like 2000 ish. Um, well, allow me to make the poetic out al- the argument that it's going to be number seven. Yeah. I think that's, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I think based on how, I mean, for its market, this is way fucking weirder than what to do about them was for its market. So I think that's, that that's like, that's that. That's me arguing myself into. Yeah, yeah, we can put it at number seven. Yeah, I mean, I was I was prepared for you to go higher up the list. And I was no, like, yes, that's that's reserved for the Tracto Twins. That's fair. <laughs> we get three Tracto Twins albums on the show eventually, and one of them is my favorite album of all time. So, <laughs> so you know, I, yeah. I know I've said Loveless is is my is the best album of the '90s, but but Four Calendar Cafe is my favorite album ever. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, this was great, and I'm glad you. I'm glad we, I listened to it because I, it, it allowed me to finally engage with an artist who I'd only heard bits and pieces of, but never sat down and listened to all the way through. And I appreciate that, and that's why I'm that's probably why I'm sticking up for the album so much is that it was a nice experience for me. And if I had heard that in the the '90s, I probably would have really enjoyed it. But I wasn't really a place that I could have heard it. Yeah, well, I mean, this was like getting this album in 1996 was kind of crazy because you know. Yes, Asia didn't exist then, or if it did, most Americans didn't know about it. This was something that it was like kind of hard to get. So yeah, so it was a really cool thing to have. And I think this might have been the first album I ever imported, actually, it, it or at least the first from a, an Asian territory. I don't think I don't remember if I had imported um, "Happy End of the World" by Pizzicato Five because that was the first Japanese album I imported. Either that or eighteen, nineteen, twenty by Nami Amaro, but I think it was the Pizzicato Five album. So this was this was a milestone in my personal like music collecting yeah. career. And it's so. good. You have good taste. I like. I don't think I say that enough, but you you do have good taste. God you damn just... it! I do have good taste. I like the Tarto Twins. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this will be number seven. Yes. So between what's the story, Morning Glory, and what to do about them. Indeed. All right, so let's take a break so I can take a drink of water and get the fucking dust out of my mouth, and then we will You're on fucking dust. be back with Susie and the Banshees. We are back with our second album of the week, which is from 1991, uh, Superstition by Susie and the Banshees. So turning it over to you, Hadrian. So this was the 
soundtrack to my childhood, I firmly remember, because I was, let's see, I would have been three, four in 91? And my mom is a, a, a goth, and that was always what we li- what was listening to when I was, you know, cognizant of things. I can re- I remember Ongo Boingo and Susie and the Banshees being very prominent in, in, in my formative memories. And I remember when my mom got this album, not the, mo- the exact day, but I remember Kiss Them For Me just being a constant just beat in the back of my mind. And it was a feeling, a sense of place. I knew how my mom was feeling or what she was doing based on when she played this album. And... That carried through. When we when I put this on to finally listen to it, I was like, I am taken back to just like this weird, pleasant, warm feeling that this album is not necessarily trying to invoke, but it is what I have tied to it. So that's going to color a lot of our our debate later. But this album is great. It, there is not a single song in this album listening through it. And I had never done that in my entire life until now. That I would just turn off. I've I've happily dispersed them across a few playlists that I have that are primarily gothy. But this could go on anything. You, this this was not necessarily designed as a crossover album. And I feel in many ways it was she was responding to bands like The Mission doing this more like Eastern influenced rhythm and just stunting on them in a way <laughs> that. They couldn't do it. They didn't have the money. They didn't have the vision. She had musicians and the money, and she was just going to... They didn't have Talvin seeing. Exactly. And she was just like, we're going to make this thing that just kicks open a door. And the way that Kiss Them For Me hits is the same way that like the Decemberist The Infanta hits, which is just this loud and unyielding and pretty sound. I really like The Infanta. <laughs> <laughs> um... But yeah, it's like ah, this album is great, and it's you. If you hand it to somebody who thinks like, oh, all goth music is just shuffling in the dark, and you give them this album, it's like this is the art at the core of goth, and it is. It's so great. So I don't, I don't have like lots of deep facts to talk <laughs> about. I'm more like this music's really great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is really great. Um, Kiss them for me was my introduction to Susie and the Banshees really? as well. Yeah, I had not heard them before that because, you know, it was hard to find. Like I have weird gaps in in my music, and Susie and the Banshees was not a band that you heard on the radio, and no. because. My older sister didn't listen to them. I didn't hear them um, until this song came out. And fucking from the first time I heard it, I was like, oh, this is fucking everything. It's so good. Um, It's, you know, Kiss Them For Me, it's built on that sample of PSK, What Does It Mean by School ED. And then it has the added, like, Indian percussion by Talvin Singh. And it's just so infectious and, and just grabs you and does not let go. She's really um, making the case that you don't need a sitar to invoke a, a sense of place. No, no. Percussion is, like, sitar is, is the, the bitch way of doing it after you hear this. Like, exactly. <laughs> which, is, which is why I... Sitar <laughs> is an instrument a bitch would play. <laughs> um, yeah, and then so, Shankar comes out of nowhere and just whips us from beyond the, yeah, beyond the plane. With, you know, sitar strings just come shooting out of the ground and wrap around our necks. Um, so this was produced by Stephen Haig, who was known for working with New Order, which, which explains a lot yes, about how yes. it sounds. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a much crisper sound than many Susie albums had previously. Yeah, I mean, this was like, when I heard other Susie stuff, I didn't like it for at first, because I was like, this doesn't sound like just them for me. I mean, in a way, this is like a, almost feels like a bit at doing a pop crossover. But, but but for me, it just really just sounds like she is taking, she is standing on the necks of everyone in Goth well, trying yeah, to do this. That's and, what Susie is going to do. But I mean, that that is the way Susie would do a pop crossover. Yeah. It's just fucking stunt on people. Um, so like, if you listen to the previous album before this peep show, it, it's like, it kind of feels like them running out of ideas of, of like for their old sound. Yes. Because the, it has, I mean, the, the title track is like a little closer to this album i would say but 
like the rest of the album is kind of their old like goth rock stuff but it, it's just kind of starting to sound threadbare and i was really surprised i thought peep show was older no it's 88 yeah because i thought tinderbox was the one right before this because tinderbox sounds way more like this than, than peep show does yeah but this has like the peekaboo has a very like grand and full sound yeah peekaboo is the song i was thinking yeah of. It, that's it's, a very it's not yeah. peep show and that's another one of my favorite Susie songs yeah it's, that song's awesome but it yeah so the the it, I think, is, has a more direct link to what's being done in Superstition, but this was really just a tidying up of of what Susie and the Banshees could do, because like their their prominence in in music had changed greatly. Like they they didn't have to try, they didn't have to work in the same scene, so why wouldn't they just make things sound prettier and fuller and do whatever they wanted? And it, it, and once they stopped trying to appeal to an aesthetic, they became their own aesthetic if that makes sense that would have always been there but the best Susie songs all fit with superstition yeah i mean there are some outliers that are still bangers yeah but... uh, cascade is is like one of my absolute favorite Susie songs and it's i mean you could do a version of cascade in this style but it's it has a more insistent immediate sound to it than this does but this album is, is really informed by everything this band had done coming up to this point and just reimagined is there's a freeness to it like the 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 simplicity of the cover of the, the her and the the yellow dress on the pink background it's like it's it's it almost seems like a pop crossover but there's still just enough toothsomeness there that there's enough like i am from the shadows yeah but it's it's what makes goth good and it's like it's what in this and the mission, the reason I'm doing these albums and not, you know, diving into Peter Murphy or something is that Goth in the 90s was in a weird state. And it was up to Susie to save it. And even in 91, she already saw the writing on the wall for what was happening in the 80s. Which is fine. Things change. But a lot of acts didn't change. Yeah, and, and like you can kind of see the two branches. Like the cure went into sort of guitar worship you know alternative rock stuff with wish and mm -hmm. Susie went into pop yes and it, those are two i mean wish is you know depending on the day you ask me wish might be my favorite cure album but like the, this is also a really interesting way to because it's this i think people before i mean if, if people thought about goth they thought of it as being like weird and dark but also maybe like kind of scruffy and amateurish in many ways yeah and and this was like like oh no we're gonna show you like the elegance that's buried in this music that you're not grasping by bringing it out from under the sort of scratchy guitars and like cavernous like tom based <laughs> drum beats <laughs> like silver waterfalls is one of the most beautiful songs I've heard. The, yeah, that song is fucking great. And you, you just put that on for somebody. Someone who's, oh, you know, I don't really like, I don't really like this. You just, you just turn Silver Waterfalls up really loud and stare at them <laughs> until the chorus hits. And they're just like, oh, yeah, I get it. Like, yeah, you, do you understand? Do you understand? Because, like, that, that that's what this is. But, like, Shadow Time, uh, Softly, I even like, even though it's the slowest, longest song on the on the album, even it doesn't overstay its welcome. It's just, like, a nice break before... Uh, the ghost in you, which I thought, because that's I'd never listened to this album all the way through. I thought, did did Susie cover that psychedelic furs song? <laughs> I, I had in my notes, the ghost in you sounds like you too, <laughs> but it's not the psychedelic furs song, and, and it's, it's it's not a U two cover. But it damn, yeah. does it sound like it should be on the Joshua tree? <laughs> yes, uh, fear of the unknown is probably the most like old Susie. Yeah, and I think it's and that's fine because it's it's old Susie filtered through this new lens and elevating her their previous work into this just like album that doesn't stop like every track is just like oh that was oh, that song was pretty good oh oh man this song is good too how do i pick a song that's good <laughs> when they're all good so i would say that the thing that separates the best tracks on the album from the, i mean like I, there's not really anything on this that i dislike no um that some songs sound very 1980s, though. Mm -hmm. uh, Cry sounds very very 80s. Uh, I mean, The Ghost in You sounds super 80s, but but it's kind of a better 80s. Um, 
like and shadow time is like the best of the 80s yeah i mean shadow time still sounds like modern enough i mean like kiss them for me is like the huge like leap forward and and sounding like and that's the statement that's why it's at the beginning of the album they're like you're jettisoning you into the future of what our sound will be and even though their later albums are not necessarily like that yeah it did change the tone and the conversation and that's Yeah, Rapture, the follow-up to this, actually went back to a more <laughs> more of a rock sound. Well, but... The point was made. They didn't have to do it. And <laughs> uh, so I think that there is almost some, like, some Twin Peaks influence mm-hmm. on Softly and Little Sister. Both of those songs sound like they could have been on the Twin Peaks soundtrack. Yes, very much so. And then, uh, so like I really like Fear of the Unknown a lot, and I like that it, it's it kind of reminds me of I mean not in the way it sounds, but like reminds me of the song uh, "Violently Happy" by Bjork, mm-hmm, where it's the sort of like it, it's like she's encouraging like it's, it it sounds that if you're if you don't listen all that closely of like you know take a chance and do this thing that that will be positive, but then if you kind of listen to the lyrics, it's like you know jump off a building don't let your fear of the unknown stop you it's like which is like exactly the same as violently happy where it's like the combination of like i'm so happy let's jump off the fucking roof and kill ourselves right now oh i think there's a lot of like Susie influence on bjork anyway well talvin singh would go on to become bjork's live percussionist well there we go (laughs) there is bjork was definitely aware of this album yeah. Oh man, I'm so glad I picked this. It, it just—it was a nice pickup. It was like I needed—I needed this album. It, yeah. I needed to just crank it up loud in my car because I've been doing a lot of driving this week, and it just felt great. <laughs> it, and I thought maybe I would have like this rose-colored glasses. Up. Maybe it's not as good as I remember. That is, like, I'm looking back on it fondly because it was so formative. No, no, it's just fucking rad. And it melts your face. Like, if you have not listened to Kiss Them For Me loudly in a long time, just get go to the best speakers that you own or can borrow and turn that song up loud and just let it hit you in the face. And yes, you want that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's not, it's, it's, you can't stress enough just how awesome that, that song sounds. I mean, just... And because it, it invokes, like, it, I don't know if it has a music video. I never, I never looked at it. Oh, I'm sure see. it did. It was. No, it did because it was the last video to ever play on 120 minutes. Oh, nice. Yeah, because, uh, well, I didn't watch it for this, but I, I, and I think I didn't look it up because I have this image of just, like, an ornate, d- decadent party. And it's just, like, shimmering fountains and. Things that aren't quite—it's not quite real. It's very, very shifty in my thoughts. Is what this makes me think of. It is—it is poetry. It is beautiful. It is powerful, and that image is too good. I don't want to taint it with anything. I've because she mentions New Orleans in the song. I've always equated. I've always had this connection in my head between that song and uh, Bloodletting by Concrete Blonde. I could see both that. of those songs have always sounded like a party, like a vampire party in New Orleans. <laughs> Bloodletting is the vampires going to the party, and Kiss Them for Me is the vampire party. <laughs> yeah, because in my in my mental picture, I get like Spanish moss outside, columns, trees, flowers, just twinkling lights, like a, a heady heaviness that is trying to be more ethereal than it is, and it's just, which is what this song is. It's like sweaty ethereal. Yeah, and it's it, but it's a it, but that's a gorgeous aesthetic in some ways. Yeah, I mean I'm southern. That's probably why that's it's an yeah, a gorgeous it's aesthetic a for me. Very southern gothic, despite <laughs> the Indian percussion. And, but it's a combination of you know hip hop percussion and Indian percussion. Yeah, it's just it's a symphony in a song, and the, I, I love it. <laughs> I love it so much. Yeah, it's definitely one of the best songs of of everything of all the albums we've reviewed so far. That that's definitely a. A top ten song, if not a top five song, and then the rest of the album is maybe not as as great, but it doesn't disappoint you. You're like, because that song is so powerful. There's nothing you could if they had tried to meet that pa- that passion and power through every song. The album would be unlistenable. Like you couldn't do a twelve songs that are all kiss them for me. Well, no, I mean it's it's just like a once in a life, not a once in a lifetime, but very close to that. Yeah, you know, you don't you don't write a song that that infectious 
a whole lot of times in your life. Yeah. So, yeah, this is probably one of the best goth albums ever because it's not even really a goth album. It's one of the best albums ever because it just proves what time and skill and passion can do when you just try to change what you're doing and, and then using what you've built to inform what you can do rather than... F and the same with the, the, the Fei Wong album, like using your interests and your passions to open a door, let loose your sound and what you're interested in. And these albums match fairly well for that, I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Susie and like the first Tocto Twins album, Garland's, is very obviously Susie inspired. Mm -hmm. um, there's no doubt that they were heavily in influenced by Susie. Um, and so that obviously like that was a through line for the Tocto Twins. Um, even though by the, you know, when they really defined their sound and became like pure ethereal dream pop, like it might not have been super obvious, but it was there. Um, I think that this also like the comparison to Bjork works in another way, because I feel like this moved, it, you know, it might have been retroactive, like it, it, it might not have been a huge uh, conscious influence at the time, but I feel like this moved pop music forward too, oh, even absolutely. though it's a, you know, alternative kind of goth album that, it, you know, in the United States it did well, but it wasn't like Kiss Them For Me peaked at number 23 on the top top 40. Which is a crime. Um, it, yeah. It, but the world wasn't ready for it. No, it, it wasn't. But like, just like the first Bjork album, kind of like at the time, people kind of didn't know what to do with it. I, I do feel like this filtered back into more mainstream stuff as the 90s progressed. So even though like Susie didn't necessarily capitalize on it, it I feel like other artists did kind of maybe hear this and be like, oh, hey, yeah, there's like we can we can do something with that. I mean, well, Susie is always just open doors for other people, even though the, she gets kind of grumbly about it. Like, yeah. Which I, mean, I get it when you're very influential and just this is like ball of raw talent like you get it gets very exhausting when people just take all your shit including your makeup robert <laughs> smith yeah robert <laughs> smith literally stole her lipstick <laughs> and her entire eye makeup design <laughs> on the album that, <laughs> that he was playing on he's wearing her eye makeup it's the you can and it's on the back cover and she is just she looks like she's in the foreground looking like Susie, but vaguely pissed, and then there's just Robert Smith in the background looking exactly like Susie. Yeah, and and, and like you know that Robert Smith was was trolling her. Oh yeah, like I, I fucking love Robert Smith. I, I do too. It's, if you have not watched the interview when they got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, oh my god! Oh, that, that whole walk. I recommend watching both that and the Roxy Music one because I feel uh, Duran Duran's talk about rock music is great but yes the cure segment so, is one robert smith are you excited to be here well not as much as you apparently <laughs> this is robert smith in a nutshell and we're gonna have to find we're gonna have to find some good to say about 90s cure albums I, I mean well okay yeah there's one of them is is among the best cure albums one of them one of them but do we start with that one that's a conversation for another day. It is. I like Wild Mood Swings, but <laughs> it is not among the Cure's best work. No, but this is among Susie's best work. If not, I, I would argue this is probably their best album, but I'm I'm a weirdo. Yeah, I don't, it's real hard for me to choose between this and Tinderbox. Tinderbox is also very good. But Candyman is my favorite Susie song, even though it doesn't hit like kiss them for me it comes pretty fucking close to hitting like kiss them for me because when when they go hard they go hard and it's just you can't stop it and that's why i thought i when i finally listened to this again i f i felt that like this was a direct response <laughs> to carved in sand because <laughs> that album was trying to be very ambitious and full and change sound some and then susie's just like mm-hmm and it's like uh that scene that scott pilgrim when the dragons come out of the amplifiers, like that's what happened. That is that is what happened, and, and the mission were not prepared for to get louder. <laughs> they were not ready for Oscar. No slash Susie. Okay, well, you gave the game away on this one last week, and already said where you, where you were going to put it. I think, but I 
think it's number one. No. I think I think it is. It's it's not number one. Just the for me is great, but it's it's not better than Liberation. <laughs> um, not as a whole. Like it's two eighties. I mean, I don't like it as much as the philosophy of Momus, but I am gonna have to let that one go at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's high on the list. It's like I'm I'm I was being somewhat shitty about. Oh, it's that. definitely top three. Yeah, I mean, I would I would put it above Kill Uncle. I would put it above the philosophy of Momus, just because I feel it is so powerful for what that certain aspects of '90s alternative music sounds like. It is it is a good album. There is nothing objectionable really. Other than some songs sound a bit dated, but like they're a band that's been around since the seventies, yeah. so like allow I, I think them to too be a bit much dated. of it sounds dated to be number one for sure. Um, honestly, I think too much, which of it is sounds... hilarious because it is in contention with an album that literally has harpsichords on it. <laughs> yeah, but it's harpsichords used in a, in a way you hadn't really heard before. I know, I'm um, just I'm teasing. It, it's it's very dated outside of. Well, okay, I was going to say outside of Custom For Me, but I, I keep forgetting it's 91. So, like, the stuff that sounds like Twin Peaks is of its time. Um, but, like, all the stuff that, like, rocks a little harder is so 80s. Um, and Which isn't a bad thing. Like, that's not a, that's not a thing I would really knock it for, except that we're trying to decide where it goes on a list against stuff that I think is more forward-looking but i think this is forward-looking in many ways because it it just changed the way that a lot of music of in this style is recorded and and it just produced and the effort put into it like and it it, it took goth from this like the kids that were eyeliner into the people who influenced the people your mother might listen to occasionally like it's yeah it's a crossover album but it's not trying to be it's more just like it exploded onto the scene and you can do with it what you want but Susie made a fucking point yeah and so like just to lay my cards on the table like I would personally it's weird because I think it's better than Kill Uncle I I would put it below 10 though so it would for me it would probably be like like all things being equal I would put this like directly underneath 10 but I know you want it higher than that and so like we're gonna find a compromise in between like I, I don't think it can be number one, well, and that's fair. I, I, and I wasn't going to like defend that, but I do think it could be number three. I think, I think it could it, absolutely number three. I mean, I would definitely like working with the list we have and not like the perfect list in my head. It's, it's better than Kill Uncle. Yes. Um. So is it? <laughs> so, I mean, like you're, you're, you're learning my. You're learning how to argue against me um, because I do think that like it's, philosophy of Momus is like I lo- I like philosophy of Momus a lot more. It also has that problem that we have discussed over and over of the first like six songs should shouldn't be on the album, mm-hmm. and, and which is a, which is an issue. And like, yeah, and that's one of the reasons I kept Kill Uncle so high because like ten you could argue that like well this had a broader appeal, but I think Kill Uncle is doesn't sound like the same thing, and it's it's fighting with the philosophy of moments to kind of keep those things in balance that we have something that has some serious problems as number two. And there is virtually nothing wrong with superstition from like, you could hand that to anybody who has a vague interest in the style of music and they'll be like, yeah, that was pretty good. What about the line in cry when she says for once in a life, be a man and weep because all the dolphins and whales are gone. I look, think that's a serious problem. <laughs> look, I I I, th- I also thought Sea of Love hit so one, hard. Uh, the dolphins and whales are not gone. <laughs> look, there's lyrics and then there's goth lyrics, and you just accept some things in goth lyrics. No, I, I mean honestly, the only thing that holds me back on this is philosophy of Momus. I feel like was kind of. The, the good songs, the the thirteen songs that are the real philosophy of Momus, not not <laughs> the ones that sound like Beck, are like kind of state of the art, like in that they are dealing with this like future Japan that wouldn't be like a thing in Western music for another like twenty years. Yeah. Versus this, which a lot of it sounds like it was recorded in the 80s. 
But the but there's no single song in the philosophy of Momus that is better than Kiss Them for Me. No, definitely not. And because of that, I mean, I would I would I would argue to put the Susie album above that, but I'm willing for it to just be in balance at number three. So there you have, you know, this nice spread of music from one to four that or one to five at this point that sort of like sums up a lot of what the 90s sounds like. And we're going to make this more complicated as we go, but those five albums, if you put Susie in the middle of that, that makes sense. Without, if we could get more hip hop up there, then you'd have a fuller perspective of what the of what the '90s sounded like. Yeah. Well, but, I mean, we're gonna do Tribe Called Quest eventually, and then we will have hip hop in the top five. Yes. Um, uh, spoilers. I'm gonna agree on that one already. Yeah. But um, I feel I'm trying really hard to separate my love of Philosophy of Momus from its obvious issues. Mm-hmm. I really, the how much some of this sounds like the '80s makes me not want to have it at number two. That's that's honestly my that's that's my argument that I think is as objective as I can be when I'm trying to put it against an album that has like deep nostalgic value to me. Mm-hmm. Is like and trying to separate myself from that and have an honest discussion. Like my that is the last son kind of like. That that's like my last stand is like some of the shit sounds way too eighties to be any higher than number three. No, that's fine. I'm, I mean, like I already, I, I ten minutes ago I agreed to number three. <laughs> okay, well I'm I'm trying to not like <laughs> I don't want you to agree because you want to end the podcast. I want you to agree because we agree. No, 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 we do agree. And I, I mean, I I was coming out hard to challenge the philosophy of Momus because we have to start. We have yeah. to start picking away at it because it's, it's. I mean, there there are plenty of albums I would put above it. I, I just I don't in picking albums for the show. I don't want to like pick all my favorite albums first and then have nothing to look forward to. You know. And I'm trying not to do that too. I mean, I have many albums that I like that I haven't done yet. Um, I just kind of going where my mood takes me, and that that's been important. Because I would. I mean. I'm not going to sit here and be like, man, that Primitive Radio Gods album is like the most influential thing in my life. <laughs> no, I hope not. <clears throat> this oh. is way better than that. Oh, yes. So, okay. So, yeah, if you're cool with number three, that's where I feel the best about it. Yeah. Is number three. Number three is fine. Okay. All right. Well, we had some changes to our top ten this week, so it's a good time to read it off again. Um, number 10 now is Reaching a New Refutation of Time and Space by Digable Planets. Number 9 is What to Do About Them by The Swirlies. Number 8, Anxiety by Fei Wong. Number 7, What's the Story, Morning Glory by Oasis. Boy, that one, that shows me how far this show has come because I still keep thinking about that as like in the top 5. Mm-hmm. Uh, number 6, Eight Arms to Hold You by Veruca Salt. Number 5, 10 by Pearl Jam. Number 4, Kill Uncle by Morrissey. Number three, Superstition by Susie and the Banshees. Number two, The Philosophy of Momus by Momus. And number one, still undefeated, Liberation by the Divine Comedy. And We'll get I, there eventually. Yeah, I, I, I like how fucking weird this list is so far, though. It, it, being able to look at the 90s this way helps, because this is all music that has in some way changed the landscape of music, but it's not what people in the 90s would have thought of as being the best of the 90s. Which is why it's good to look back on things about 20 years later. Yes. All right, well, what are we going to be looking back on next week? What do you have? Uh, Placebo's second album, which is the Kill Uncle of Placebo albums. <laughs> God. Without you, I'm nothing. <laughs> That's way to sell it. <laughs> well, no, when I say that, people say this album sounds like shit, and even if Placebo agrees, it kind of oh, sounds okay. like shit. Okay. So it's, it's the Kill Uncle of Placebo albums for that reason. I feel like there is a through line in a lot of our favorite albums so far that the artist thinks they sound like shit. Because mm-hmm. apparently Susie doesn't like the way Superstition sounds. That's Outside, fucking hilarious. She, she kind of said, like, kiss them for me. She was being a curmudgeon. She was like, he recorded it on fucking computers. No one makes music on fucking computers. Oh, Susie. So. Uh, I love, love her, but... Mm. All right, well, so... I know the artist. I'm. I just had an internal struggle of which album. <laughs> um, let's say, "Get Lost" by Magnetic Fields. 
Really? It was either going to be Get Lost or Holiday. I couldn't decide, but I I listened to Get Lost this week, and fucking first time I've had a great time listening to the Magnetic Fields in about ten years. So man, you're making you're making next week hard. Next week is going to be a tough one. <laughs> next week is so hard. <laughs> And also on uh, when I'm putting uh, without you on nothing on there the Spotify on our playlist the Spotify version has uh, evil dildo which is a hidden track that was only on the CD version. Well, uh, I think that counts then. But it's not on every version of the CD. If it was on an original version of the CD, I would I would say it. I'm gonna it double check on, on that, but I personally if it was put on on a later remaster, I would say no. Yeah, I have never heard it on an actual version of this album. And I own this album in three different ways. So. <laughs> I can see both three ways. Mm-hmm. I'm going to listen to this shit on vinyl. <laughs> so, yeah. So, Get Lost and Without You, I'm Nothing next week. Yay! Man, that's... That's a... F- Get Lost might... That that's a contender for number one. Yeah, and you know you know how we were we were talking about like you know it's not always based on the people who write the best lyrics. Look at the fucking top. Like it's Susie's the only outlier there. I see people like Susie and Ten are like. And the Susie o- has written some real good lyrics. Oh so yeah, just, I, I was making fun of one lyric on the album. But yeah, no, putting Stephen Barrett in that fight is just a just slap fight of like being clever. Prissy boy, clever prissy boys. Yes, <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't really classify Neil Hannon as prissy, though. He, he's no, he's a little bit more cricket and tweed, not necessarily. That's prissy by American standards, uh, but it's not by fine. Not by British standards. Yeah, everyone else prissy, just like Susie included. Just all right. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to next week. This this may be the the best overall week we've had. I'm not sure. Yeah, I've, the I've, Momus and, and Oasis episode two came pretty close to me for like the pure amount of good music. But this, this, this I know it'll beat that for you because you don't like Oasis as much as I do. But mm-hmm. all right, well, so something to look forward to next week. This is I, I can't wait to talk about Get Lost. The, yeah, the album's so fucking good. <laughs> I forgot how good Get Lost was. All right, so no, let's we have to wait till next week. So look forward to it.